Growing up, we used Fiesta Ware plates at home every day. Growing up, I had a day bed in my bedroom, the kind that went along the wall long ways and had three sides on it with a trundle bed underneath. Growing up, we had a hammock in the backyard, and Saturday was always bathroom cleaning day. Growing up, my mom drove a Volvo station wagon. If you've been to the vicarage, as Jordan likes to call it, or to the Hilden house, as I refer to it, you will see that we too use those sturdy, colorful Fiesta Ware plates. If you take a look in our garage, you would see that we have a daybed frame, though it doesn't fit in our house right now. And last summer, before some kids helpfully demonstrated the insufficient anchoring, we had a hammock in our backyard. And when I manage it, I still clean the toilets on Saturday mornings. Any of you can look outside right now and see that I drive a Volvo station wagon. You may think that you're becoming your mother or your father, but I will give you a run for your money. It took me until last year, when we were setting up our third house of our marriage, to realize how deeply my childhood had imprinted on my vision of what home means. I'm sure there are plenty of ways that my growing up years have formed my perspective of life and family that I haven't even noticed yet. I was never once told that Fiesta Ware was the right brand of dinnerware to use. Never was I instructed that a home ought to have a daybed with a trundle for ease of entertaining guests and economy of space. No one ever said that backyards needed to have a hammock or that toilets ought to be cleaned on Saturday mornings or that all moms drive station wagons. I learned and internalized all these things. I swallowed them very deeply without even a single word spoken. Our environments, the places, rooms, the workplaces and retail stores, the neighborhood streets and our friends, our family members, and even our favorite books, the television shows that we love and the places that we go to eat, every experience lodges in us and begins to shape us, to orient us somehow, to turn our attention and our habits in a certain direction, to color our perspective. And our environments do all of this without a single word of instruction. It's perhaps the strongest case for actions speak louder than words. So Ephesians urges us this morning, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Therefore, that word suggests that a case has been laid out, an argument has been made, and the result of that foundation and reasoning that we, the readers, those who seek to be followers of the God made known in Jesus Christ, 
Because of that, we ought to imitate God. For our actions and our to speak louder even than our words. For our actions to imitate our God, Jesus Christ. The argument that has been made, the case that has been laid out, is in the preceding chapters of this book, which we've been reading and studying together each Sunday for the last four weeks. In chapter 1, we read that Jesus Christ is the foundation. In chapter 2, we learned that Christ as the foundation of a community means that the people who practice this following of God in Jesus Christ practice grace with one another and with everyone they meet. In chapter 3, we learned that part of grace is the good hard work of reconciliation, of growing up and choosing to break down dividing walls, using those bricks instead to build something together. Then last week in chapter 4, we read that God has given us to each other as gifts, that each of us has a necessary place in the system of our community, that we can only thrive and grow if we do it together, that we miss the entire point if we think of Christianity as a solitary activity. Therefore, be imitators of God. But rather than looking at this chapter 5 as finger-wagging and instructive, I wonder if we could look at it instead as a description of a vision, a word picture of God's kingdom. The second part of this chapter 5 is that infamous passage, Wives Be Subject to Your Husbands. As you can see in the bulletin, Father Jordan was supposed to preach this Sunday, and Father Jordan is not the person in front of you right now, but I thought it would be pretty hilarious for the quiet, forbearing member of our marriage to preach on the submissive quietness of women. But as I read this chapter again, asking God for a different perspective on this text that's been used to wound in the past. The Holy Spirit suggested that perhaps it was less about finger-wagging and more about giving concrete examples of what a life of God-inspired imitation and actions look like. How does a wife walk as a child of light? How do children discern the will and what pleases God? How does a master walk wisely? The first part of chapter 5, which we look at this morning, gives us the theories, the underpinnings, the foundations for how to be in relationship with one another. And then the second half of the chapter, where all of those relationships are outlined, is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. It seems to be less about determining that wives have got to be the silent type and that children should be seen and not heard and that oppression is all right as long as the master is nice and more about getting the whole 
picture of all people serving one another, of all the people in a community, whether that's a church or a city, a neighborhood or a family, all those people being gifts one to another, just as God has called us to do. Be imitators of God, therefore, as beloved children. Don't be fornicators. Don't tell dirty jokes. Don't be greedy. Don't be jealous. Don't do impure things. But if this passage is less about damning rules and more about God's kingdom and how his communities look, I wonder if we could understand these words as descriptive rather than prescriptive. Imagine. A place where God is active has no room, no desire for physical relationships that take advantage of someone else. A community that is centered on Jesus seeks to know people's hearts rather than judging an outward appearance. In God's kingdom, there is no hoarding or greediness because we trust that God provides enough. Enough food, enough wealth, enough love, enough forgiveness, enough light. With Christ as our foundation, jubilation and humor don't depend on cheap shots. Laughter wells up out of deep joy rather than stripping dignity from someone else. The root of all of these good actions and right habits is the household of God. We harbor that subconscious spiritual childhood echoing in our souls. Just as I have an unspoken predilection to hammocks in the backyard and fiesta wear china, each of us is placed with a God-shaped hole filled by only Christ himself. Our desire is sated when we rest in that household, in the kingdom, if you will. Of God. Deep down, without a word of instruction, we know the way that things ought to be. In the intervening years between this spiritual awareness of God's kingdom and all its glories and where we find ourselves now, all kinds of things can get in the way of that familiarity and knowledge. The windows of God's house 
might get painted over in the confines of our hearts. The walls of the household of his kingdom might be ripped down and put up in different places. The china that we cherished for use at Sunday dinners in God's house might have been thrown out. But somewhere in the recesses of our minds and of our hearts, we know the way that God's kingdom ought to look. And as we suffer those moments of forgetfulness, of not remembering this household, this kingdom in which we are made to dwell, God gives us to each other to be images of himself, that we might remind each other of what God's vision of his kingdom, of his homeland, of his home is to be. For once, you were darkness. But now, in the Lord, you are light. Live as children of light. Being redeemed, forgiven, reconciled to God. We are reminded of this world that God longs to come to fruition here and now. When we gather each Sunday at church, we are reminding each other and ourselves of the good, beautiful, true kingdom of God, which is in our midst. However it is that we become forgetful during the week, the china on the altar table is here to remind us. Whatever isolation or desperation or ill health or financial woes we face during the week, the words of the prayers that we pray together, and God's word to us jogs our memory and sets us back on the path of his perspective, the road of his kingdom. So our worship is a reminder of the household of God to which we belong, as well as our prayers, our sweet times of fellowship with our friends and family members, our children, and the moments of sacrifice when we join in the smallest ways in Christ's own suffering. And most of all, Holy Communion reminds us with the body and blood of Christ himself. In a strikingly similar way, And without one word of instruction, the things that we watch on television, read on the internet or in newspapers, the relationships that we choose to spend time on, the places that we hang out and shop and live, all of these are like the fiesta wear that we choose, the Saturday toilet cleaning. They're all reminders of darkness, 
or of light, drawing us closer to the God for whom we long, or dragging us further into the disorienting darkness of evil and desperation. So may our prayer each day be the same as it is on Sundays. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known. From you no secrets are hid. Amen. Amen.